welcome to the Delta Flyers with Tom and Harry as we journey through episodes of Star Trek Voyager. Your two hosts along this journey are myself, Garrett Wong, and my co-host, Mr. Robert Duncan McNeil. Hello, Robbie. I feel like I wanted some music. How many people know that tune? Only the millennials, but they know the millennials know that tune? Probably not. Wait, you know, I got to admit, I haven't watched The Tonight Show in many years. I know Jimmy Fallon is very popular. I think I've seen clips. But my question is, when he comes out, do they do The Tonight Show theme? The old, I don't think so. That's gone now. I think it's gone. Wow. I'm going to have to watch Don't the quote Show me on that, but we have to check I, it out. Yeah. I have no idea. Wow. That's too bad. That was a classic theme. Yeah. You know, someday, Garrett, the theme song to the Delta Flyers podcast, people are going to be you know, singing along, humming they along to along. our theme song. They will, which I picked yeah. out. I know after you did. Listening to, I, after I listened to, I don't know, was it probably like 1,000 hours worth of songs? We, <laughs> listen, we auditioned a lot of different themes. We wanted it to be yeah. kind of spacey, kind of, you know, relaxing, kind of techno, good energy, good yes. vibes, good yes. vibes for everybody. But I must say, yes. the, my original, the number one pick did not get approved by Robbie. Because <laughs> Robbie was like, I don't want to pay for this for like things. Blah, blah, blah. We have to pay royalties on this. I'm like, Robbie, it's not that much. Well, I'm not down for it. So then uh, we backed off of that. But we, it, maybe. Yeah, we you can, like uh, some song that had a very tough licensing situation. It, and yeah, sometimes, but Garrett, I got to tell you, like when I'm producing TV shows or editing, yes. you know, directing TV shows. Yes. Like this Turner and Hooch. I put an Aerosmith song into my my director's cut. Yeah. That everybody loved the studio, the network. Everybody was like, oh my God, it's so funny when you play Walk This Way over yeah. the Hooch yeah. Dog. Yeah. But then we got the price tag on it. And everybody's like, we're not gonna use that Aerosmith song. So we ended up going with a you know, like an indie band that's got a yeah. similar kind of, but it's not as funny. Okay. But well. As that happens in the big leagues too, baby. It, it does. It does. And as disappointed and frustrated as I was, you know, back in May when I now, when how I, do you feel about our theme? Well, I mean, I like Come our on. theme. I just want to say that I'm glad that you're there to be a bit of a voice of reason and to consider budget, you know, concerns, whatever. But yeah. but I was bummed. I'm going to say that, and you know that I was bummed. I really wanted to. I, I almost wanted to reach out to the DJ. Um, the actual DJ that put that out, he's on Twitter. So I wanted to, re- you know, I wanted to message him and say, look, man, we can change you know, up. I would you know, love have some to be musical, able to use this. We could do you some know. musical, you know, switcheroos now and then for some special, you know, bonus yeah. material. We can talk to him and uh, see if we can't mix it up a little. I mean, yeah, you know, we may, we may, we may get to a point where we want to, you know, change things up a little bit. Now the Delta Flyers theme is classic. It's, it's I would say equally as classic as the old Tonight Show theme. I think it's, it's, uh, yeah, I'm gonna, (laughs) yeah. Okay, I know, I agree. I mean, it is definitely something that you and I have heard many times over. And of course our listeners have heard many times over and they're very used to it. They're used to, that's our brand. Yeah, once you hear the, the the familiar jingle jangle of our theme music, uh-huh. you know it's Delta Flyers time, right? That's so right. I'm not yeah. complaining. I'm just just sharing with everybody. Yeah, that's how the that's how the sausage gets made sometimes. And there's the <laughs> creative decisions, you know. It's all part of the cocktail. Speaking of cocktails, I uh, I'm not doing as many uh, cocktail hour with Tom Paris. Okay. Videos for our patrons. Some of the yeah. bonus material is uh, cocktail mixes and lessons. Uh, you know, mixology with uh, yep. Tom Paris, but I've been, you know, in the new year, I'm running a few days a week. I'm changing my diet up, getting a little healthier, drinking, uh, only only having cocktails once a week, maximum at this point. You um, know, Robbie, I'm feeling good. Yeah, it's really good that you're doing that, and maybe yes. you can segue it into Tom Paris's recipe stuff. Like, it doesn't have yes, to be healthy recipe drinks. With it could Tom be a Paris. healthy a healthy smoothie or it could be some type of really yummy appetizer okay. it could be food I like it. as well okay so I like you can it. you know you can kind of expand out there yeah by the way you got my package yesterday oh yeah were you surprised Garrett. to get that were you yes, like yes i was 
Okay. My Garrett, big fear was yeah. I brought this all the way from the US to Canada. Then I had to rebox it oh and ship God. it. And I kept thinking if this, because initially Megan was like, I think, I don't think you can ship alcohol. And I said, well, oh my gosh, I have to find out. So Canada Post you, said that you, you can. can, you're okay. Yes. You're okay but I thought it was going to break. I kept thinking, I don't know how oh, Canada was... Post people are, if you're going to toss it, but I packed it tight as possible and it's in another box and it, it's all good, right? Everything was not. It was all good. So I got a box from Garrett yesterday. Uh, I open it up. It's this beautiful box. It says a fistful of bourbon. And I was like, whoa, because I love bourbons. I love bourbon cocktails. I love bourbon all kinds of ways. You know, it's I just enjoy it. It's like people like wine. Some people like wine. I like bourbons in particular and uh, rye and whiskeys. And there's some amazing whiskeys these days. We're, we're in a like a renaissance, a golden age of, of distilling and, and, and bourbons and whiskeys. And yeah, this is called a fistful of bourbon. It's a a blend, but this company was, it was very fun. The packaging, there's like dice and a game in there. There's some hot, some popcorn. It's, awesome. it's like a goodie bag. It wasn't a just a bottle of alcohol that I sent yeah. you. It was a whole little, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah. It was a little bourbon gift uh, box. So I would highly recommend, I have not tasted the bourbon yet, by the way, okay. but I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, anybody looking for a great gift for friends that like whiskey, uh, Garrett's gift that I received yesterday made me very happy. It's a great uh, company called A Fistful of Bourbon. Yeah, and uh, this gift box is great. I would I would recommend it. We're not, you know, it's not a commercial, but I'm telling you yeah. honestly, it was uh, it was a great box to open if you if you like bourbon. So it was fun. I'm, yeah, I'm sure the uh, the owners of Fistful of Bourbon are very happy to get that shout out. But I'm very curious to know what it tastes like once you you know. Pl yeah, so please. I will keep report back. Posted. Yes, appreciate. I, it. Captain, I will report back. Speaking okay. of uh, I Captain, we got to get into this episode. Yeah, we do. I'm, ex we do. I'm excited. The, the thaw. Yeah. Yes. Yes. This is a. Uh, this is definitely an episode I'm excited about as well. It's a. It's uh, Eric Kim is definitely featured in this one. So, um, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and watch this episode. Yeah. And for all of our Patreon patrons, please stay tuned for your bonus material. See you in a minute. All right, guys, we are back from watching The Thaw, and we have a very special guest with us, none other than the director and our full-time director of photography on Star Trek Voyager, Mr. Marvin V. Rush. Yay, Marv. Thank you so much for being here. Garrett and I just came off watching this episode. I had not seen it uh, since we made it, but I do remember shadowing you directing this episode and so many things came to mind about it. Uh, we'll get into all the details as we do our recap, but I, I just want to thank you for being here. It was really fun to watch. The Thaw, home destroyed by flare. Stasis chambers, two are dead. Janeway defeats fear. Oh, there's my. Yeah, heart. I like that. That's a that's, good synopsis. That's, that's quite good. Okay. That's quite good. Robbie. Well, good, Garrett. All right. You wanna Here you wanna go with grace us with your limerick? Yeah. Now Marv, limericks are much harder than haiku. Haikus <laughs> can be abstract 17 yeah, syllables. Don't undersell. Don't 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 undersell it. Man. So go. I'm just gonna warn you that my limericks are always a little bumpier. They're not quite as elegant and profound as the haiku naturally is. <laughs> I think so. So I'm here's my limerick. I, I, I intuit that you're right. My limerick goes a little something like this. Voyager finds a strange place called fear. For the hostages, a way out is not clear. Janeway has to think quick. She comes up with a trick, conquers fear, so he'll just disappear. That's pretty good. Now, that's, yeah. I, think, I don't know. You know. I think you really undersold it. That was pretty great. That, that, that actually good. is one of my better limericks. I've had some really, some tough ones, I got to say. Yeah. Well, you know, there's an art to everything. That's our synopses. That for, is our synopsis. Uh, the thaw. Right. Let's jump at the beginning. Uh, first of all, teleplay by Joe Minoski, story by Richard Gaddis, and of course, directed by Marvin Rush. So let's just start with the opening scene. We start out in Harry's quarters. And, you know, it's actually more spacious in Harry's quarters than I thought. There's that big sectional in there, right? And, and I'm playing the clarinet once again. And I, I have to say right now, 
this particular piece of clarinet music, sheet music, was extremely difficult for longer me. than uh, most. Compare, of your longer than most, more notes. You know, I don't. I kept it in, but I, I'd never walked up to Marvin and said like, "I'm freaking out." But I was freaking out when I was doing this. But thank God, it it ended up looking okay. So yeah, and I right. put a lot of that on screen. You know, that was. Uh, you know, like you uh, guys, I hadn't watched it for a long time, for years. And so uh, I truly was a, kind of a fresh audience. You know, I remembered scenes, but not the individual sequences and structure of them. Yeah. And of course, there was editorial where we shot things that didn't remain in. So, you know, that it was it was a kind of a fresh experience to watch it again. I hadn't seen it for a while. Long time. Yeah, it's the same for, for Garrett and myself with yeah. our podcast here. It has been such a joy for me. I'm going to pause in our recap for a second to just say this to you, Marv. It has been such a joy for me to revisit these episodes in sequence because I got to be honest, I sort of walked away and didn't look back from Voyager 20 years ago, 2001. I had not seen any of these episodes really to speak of. Life goes on and and to go back and rewatch these has given me such gratitude. I don't know any other word. Gratitude for the people that were a part of that experience. A lot of pride for the stories and the, and the work that we all did. And, and I just thank you for, for your contribution on the show for seven years. You did amazing work, not just directing this episode, but lighting these shows story after story with different looks, different planets, different tones, comedy or thrillers or mysteries, you know, the work in the lighting department, the camera department, every department, I've just found a whole new love of what we did in this rewatch. So I really appreciate this episode in particular. It was really special and very different than anything else yeah. we, we did. Yeah. To me, one of the things about the, the thought in general, notwithstanding that opening sequence, because yeah. that was more conventional. It meant, meant it was meant to be, yep. you know, an introduction to an episode and sort of really uh, the scene. I don't, I'm trying to think, did it actually relate in any way to the story? It was really just a kind of a cold opening. Kind of a cold opening, except I would say Harry talks about some of his anxiety with playing yeah. the, there's a little subtle hint of anxiety with yeah. playing the clarinet and That's right. That's things right. like that, but, it, but very subtle. It's subtle. Yeah, exactly. And then the, the thing that for me that was so important in the episode was to make uh, the world of the clown surreal. Not long before... I had uh, rewatched uh, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. Yep. And I had been very, very impressed with an, a style of direction and staging that was not linear. Yeah. That, that ignored the concept of continuity of position. And I embraced that for the episode. So when we, we'll talk about later, but when we get into the sequences where we were in the virtual reality world, in the way that a video game, for instance, can suddenly jump from one place to the next place. And, mm-hmm. and people don't actually have to move to that place. Or if they do, they move in an almost magical way. Yeah, I felt like it was important to construct the world inside the computer in a surreal way. Yeah, And obviously Joe Minoski wrote it that way. Maybe he was influenced by Eight and a Half as well. We never really talked about that. But I felt like that was a, that was a really good model for staging and for telling a story um, I just, I gotta say, Harris was chasing Susan Nicoletti for six months. What? I, I don't think I'd ever spoken that name before. And now all of a sudden it comes out that I've been chasing her for six months. Yeah. Which by the way, Marv, I've yeah. said on the show before, I really didn't like this womanizer skirt chasing character that was written over and over again. And just when in this point in our, our second season, just when Tom Paris had done something he had pretended to be a jerk for a while so that he could be a spy and get over to Seska's ship to help like this whole story had just culminated in sort of redeeming Tom Paris a couple episodes back and now they're throwing in the skirt chaser lines again and I was just like Ugh. I'm gonna guess that that was not Joe Minoski's words yeah I'm gonna I'm guess, gonna it wasn't. guess that, that scene was not Joe Minoski yeah I would guess too I don't know that. I really don't. I'm just, that's a, that's a W-A-G, wild ass guess, you know? Right. Yeah. But the point of that scene is that Harry has the inside track, uh, the lead in this horse race and not Tom, yes. right? Yeah. Tom yeah. is like, you're yeah, sure. making uh, waves with Nicoletta. You're making uh, inroads there. And I, that's who I like. And I think that's a little 
interesting that's, too. Yeah, that's fair. Look, yeah. it, it's a, a lovely scene. I'm not going to give it my favorite scene score. No, it, no, me neither. <laughs> we'll get to that later when our do-overs. And then and what happens? I, well, then you talk about how you always wanted to learn how to play the drums. You bring that drums. up and we're yeah. like, oh. Yeah. You never knew that? We didn't know didn't that. No. <laughs> then we go. <laughs> so much about, about themselves that their characters <laughs> their char- in the middle of, of, of a scene, they discover new things that they didn't know They're all the time. Never, yeah, for two seasons, we've never known any of this. Then we go to the bridge. Uh, yep. We find out that there's a major solar flare that caused a glacial freeze amongst these aliens mm-hmm. uh, in their colony. Uh, not only was there a glacial freeze, there were magnetic storms and extreme levels of radiation. And so the only way to really save themselves was to put themselves into stasis. And so the stasis was supposed to last long enough for the radiation to dissipate, and then they would come out of this. But there is a subroutine built into these stasis chambers that informs them of the weather conditions on the planet's surface to tell them, is it safe or not? And so it's been four years now since it's been safe, and they're still not out of their stasis chambers, which we find two are dead, three are still alive. I want to stop right there. So all of that is true. We talk about that on the bridge. And then Harry's the one, they do scans for life signs, and there's no, no life signs. Mm-hmm. But Harry's the one that pushes a little more. He goes, wait a minute, yeah. let me check something. And he digs yeah. a little deeper. One kilometer, nothing. Two kilometers, nothing. Two, wait, 2.3 kilometers down, faint life signs, two humanoids. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting that he's the one, we would have just moved on probably yeah, sure. at that moment. Right. Well, and, you know, that's that. all that scene is, is a lot of exposition to set up the scenario so you understand the problem. I mean, that's right. what that is. From my perspective, it's... It was about, you know, getting people moving, keep the shot changing, not do it as much in cuts, but rather in camera movement and actors moving around a little bit. And, and uh, that whole sequence, you know, in fact, the through line for the episode, and I, re- I relearned it from watching the episode again this morning. But um, that was something I did in the entire episode was to try to get if people were talking, they were also going from one place to another place to get ostensibly get something done, sometimes more effectively than others, but just as opposed to laying pipe, yep. you know, exposition, laying pipe, uh, getting pe- people, you know, walking about and moving. Alan Craker, uh, a lovely director, uh, you know, was a master of doing that. And I admired his style of doing it. You know, sometimes I felt like he did it to get a scene done quickly. And sometimes that's true. You know, when we, you know, as a director of photography, sometimes we get behind and we got to finish a scene in an hour. We thought it was going to take three. We only have an hour. Let's get it done. I did notice though, Marv, that you were very uh, creative and very specific about the blocking and the shots and how one line would bring us to another and to another. And so it was minimizing the cuts, which I think is some of our best episodes yeah. like yours, the thaw, like some of uh, Rick Colby's episodes, Rick was able to, he was very good at, at yes, moving, moving actors into positions so that we didn't cut all the time. You, you deliver the next line by an actor's movement. Yeah. But if you do it wrong, it looks obvious. You know, if yeah. you do mm-hmm. it right, it, you know, someone can ruminate and ruminate and as they are ruminating, they move around and the camera pans with them and suddenly you know, they, it brings us to the person who's got the next line and they says, ah, oh, wait a minute, I know what, and that's upstage. And that person then begins to do something and maybe they wander. I mean, that kind of thing, as long as you can find justification for the movement, that it's not completely, you know, move just because I need you to move. Yeah. Federico Fellini in, in Eight and a Half, there's a, a painting on the wall and the kids are jumping up and down on the bed. Yeah. And they're saying the, the saying that's written under the under the painting, which says, when the picture moves, we'll all be rich. Oh yeah. And I took that as a lesson that Fellini was reaching out to filmmakers. And that what he's saying is that, make sure that something's moving. Either people are walking Mm -hmm. around or there's something emotionally moving. But when you have movement, you know, when when the picture moves, you're getting it right. So I, I took that to heart in that episode as well to make sure that there was, you know, flow. Mm. And that it wasn't relying on editor cuts all the time. Yeah. And there was good emotional movement as well. You know, obviously with the the fear and and all of the things that happened in that side of our story. All right. In our, uh, what we've been talking about, briefing room, we find out the subroutine gives the the atmospheric conditions they can decide when to end stasis. And then now we go down to the stasis chamber Mm -hmm. Uh, for the very first time. It's Kess, Kim, and Janeway. 
Kes is obviously there because she has the medical knowledge just in case somebody needs some help there. And uh, we have a perfect example of Marvin using action. You see Kim moving uh, to, from one stasis chamber to the other. The camera tilts down and, and on Kim's hand and he's tapping on and we figure out all the, all the things that are happening with these people, that they are now connected. Everyone's consciousness is interconnected with the computer and the computer is sending data streams back and mm -hmm. forth. So something is up most definitely. It's also um, interesting. It was interesting to me. I had forgotten until this rewatch. I remembered that we went into some computer simulation thing, but I had forgotten that some of the people were alive and some were dead. Hmm. I had forgotten about the dead people, the mummy people. So that was, yeah. that was scary too. I thought the, uh, the makeup was really good. Uh, so it sets up some stakes there. Like whatever we're getting involved in, is deadly dangerous. They're not all alive. It's not yeah. going to be simple. Again, another scene that really is basically laying the understanding. The, I call it pipe, but it's you know it's, it's exposition to understand the problem. Yep. So that we can get you know get into what what we're going to do about it. Yeah. So again, another place where movement. You know, keep it rolling. You know, the audience can process this information pretty quickly. Our people are really smart, so they they figure stuff out quick, move mm -hmm. it along. You know, to gain time in some ways to gain in time, maintain enough time for other parts that where the real heart of the story gets gets mm -hmm. going. Where now we're not doing exposition, we're, we're dealing with the problem directly. Yeah, and you have time to breathe and let the, the story and the performances breathe a little more there. Right. I thought it was interesting that Janeway talks about Starfleet had developed this similar technology for long distance travel too. So I thought that was interesting. Well, 2001 is a good example of the movie 2001 of long distance space travel and the problem that humans face for you know multi-year yeah. missions you've got to find some way to not pe have people not die on the way or you have a, have a whole different way of doing it so I, I would say that was an example of how star trek is trying to sort of talk about the real problems that we actually face with yeah. the technology we actually yeah. have or would like to have in the real the real world not the make believe world of tv yeah uh, so that's i would call it that is a callback to a future that almost exists, but doesn't quite. Right. Yeah. On a side note, I just want to say that the full orchestra did an excellent job in in all the background music that you hear. I and, agree. And giving I you giving you the tension and everything yeah. and building tension. Um, they did a fantastic, amazing job. Well, I felt. and I got I was so lucky because when they were scoring it, it was the scoring stage right next door to our bridge. Mm -hmm, and yeah. I got to run over there a couple of times and I hung out at lunch while they were doing the score. And for that episode, they brought in the full orchestra. Mm -hmm. they, wow. they, did, they don't do that for all the episodes. Oh, okay. yeah. And I think uh, the company was, I'm going to assume the company was pretty uh, excited about the episode because they brought in absolutely the full, we're talking about the best studio musicians in Hollywood and, and the Philharmonic musicians and yeah. all the best people in LA that, that do that for a living. And they had, I don't know, they had, was it 60 piece? I don't, I don't recall the number, but yeah. it was, it was a full orchestra, you know, and it was, it was just such a thrill to look up there in the screen and watch the scenes playing and, and have the orchestra go boom, you know, and just knock you out. They would do one take and they go, well, let's do one more. And they do another take. It was, I couldn't tell it. It was they were both right. perfect. <laughs> you know, they would move on to the next one. It was really a thrill to see that, the scoring process. And I got to, I got to do it because we were right next door. Yeah. So between setups, I'd run over there and listen. And it was exciting to see our show get scored. I thought yeah. this particular score was very special. I think yeah. in the way you played with the visuals, they also played with the music in some mm -hmm. unconventional ways. So I also loved what you did, Marv, with the doctors popping in. Um, you know, I think it was more effective in this episode. He felt more present than he normally does. Sometimes that was just very much a cutaway to a monitor when he would pop into the briefing room or something. But the way you tied him in and the angles you chose, the way you shot all that, I thought was more effective than usual. Thank you. It was fun. I, you know, I mean, Rob Picardo is, you know, he's fabulous, you know. He's so good in this episode. He's so good. But, you know, he was such a good balance, though, because when you're in that Cirque du Soleil world of craziness, Oh my gosh. I mean, with the, the score, the musical score, everything you're sitting there, just you're on the, you're biting your fingernails. And then the doctor would come in and you'd breathe a sigh of relief. You're like, Oh, okay. Thank God. I'm, I'm, yeah. He's really there to kind of uh, balance out the tension that, yeah. that was in this episode for sure. What kind of input did you have Marv in terms of 
designing that Cirque du Soleil world that Fear was living in? Well, uh, surprisingly, not a whole hell of a lot. I had forgotten about the uh, the little person. Uh, I don't know if her character had a name, but I loved her. And yeah. she looks so familiar from other things that I've seen her in. There's a little story real quickly about her that I, I will talk to you about. I've never worked with little people except as stand-ins for children, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm not in that culture. I don't know much about it. I, I don't know one is, I don't have any friends that happen to be little people. Not that I wouldn't, but I, I don't. So, you know, originally I was going to have someone pick her up and place her. And she really like was super offended at that. And I said to her, innocently, I said to her, why? She said, well, you know, we don't want to be, we don't like to be treated like little children. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I can't, I can't exactly quote what she said, but I remember how, how a, 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 almost aghast she was at the idea. And so I said to her, I said, well, what would you have me do? And she said, well, just let me stand on a platform. Mm -hmm. And there's a scene where she's, you know, where the clown is talking to her. And I had had somebody pick her up and put her there. I'm again, I'm thinking about movement, movement. And so I, I honored her request. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I, I'm not deliberately insensitive, but I'm insensitive at times because I don't realize I, it's hard to put yourself in the place of a person who is only, you know, four feet tall or whatever her height was. Yeah. So, you know, it, it was a real wake up call. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, think before you speak, you know. But she was nice about it. She wasn't mad at me. She just didn't want to do it. And I, I instantly adjusted it. I, I, in fact, what I did is I asked her, I said, well, what would you have me do? Yeah. What do you want to do? She said, when I do this, and I said, do it. That great. was great. Great. You, know, you want to keep people on your side for one thing, but more importantly, I, I just, it was one of those little wake up calls where you, you know, you know, the world gives you a lesson, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I thought she was great. I really enjoyed her performance and the addition of her and the big masked character, the scary Probably monster not. guy. That was Carl Stroiken, who I did not realize it was Carl Stroiken until I saw the credits. He was, he played Lurch in Adam's family. He's really. Know, it was oh. Mr. Hom, Mr. Hom and Next Generation. I had no clue that was Carl Stroiken. My question to you, Marv, regarding the, the lady, the little person, and when I was watching the rewatch, my significant other, Megan, she's the one that saw this. In the scene where I'm first placed in the guillotine, she's standing next to me. Then you cut to the audience. She's also in the audience. Was that on purpose? Or was yes. that the Fellini-esque? Okay. Yes. Yeah, let's get to that. I said something earlier that, that related to that. One of the things I told... Everybody, as I said, when we're in the world of the video game, which is what it kind of is, it's yep. a video game or the program, physical continuity is not going to be honored. The clown can be anywhere. Every character is essentially a, a manifestation of the clown. Mm -hmm. So there's no physical continuity. And I said, it would be a mistake if we try to do physical continuity mm -hmm. because there's so much, you know, you got handcuffs on. You take the handcuffs off, you're free. And in a world of normal continuity where we have to honor it because the audience will be confused, we yeah. want to confuse them. Yeah. Yeah. We want to, our, our, confuse is the wrong word. We want to reinforce the idea that none of the rules apply, that yeah. everything in this world is crazy world, you know, because it's whatever this guy imagines at every, whatever moment. He's here, then he's there, and then he's over here, and then he's over there. And, and everybody else is the same. They're all, they're all manifestations of his imagination or mm -hmm. his his idea. Yeah, I was thinking about that as I watched it more from a director's perspective. And what occurred to me was when the continuity is taken away, when you intentionally want things to jump, that the anchor that we normally rely on for making television every day, the anchor of, okay, here's the marks, here's the blocking, we can look at it, we can break it down in our heads. Okay, I need this over and tighter and I need this insert and this is the screen direction and the proper eyeline direction. All these things we normally use as the anchor were taken away from you in this episode. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me as I'm watching it, how much more difficult it is, it, I would imagine that it was to not have that anchor of continuity and, and to go, okay, what's my next shot? Well, I'm looking over here, but now... I can't rely on that anchor anymore. I don't know, are the people there? Are they not there? Or wh what is my new background? I know it's got to change. Here's the thing that I, I learned from Federico Fellini, because Eight and a Half is a movie where the continuity is not, it, it, the story jumps all over the place. It's hard to follow. You have to really be paying attention. But what he did, and it's not so much the physical continuity, because within the scenes, they, were, they had physical continuity within the scenes. But scene to scene to scene, they are not, they're, they're disparate sequences. They almost are like not connected at all. Mm. But what they are connected in is emotional continuity, mm. right? In other words, 
what's happening up here in the clown's head and in yeah. Garrett's head and in everybody else's head, there is continuity. Emotional continuity is maintained, but mechanical, physical continuity is broken. So that was not an accident. I thought about that a Interesting. lot. And I felt like that was the way to solve that problem. I can do anything I want to do so long as it makes sense to the character's intentions. That makes a lot of sense. It sort of forced you to do what we should always do. There should always be emotional continuity. And sometimes the easy way is, oh, just stage the scene and I don't have to think about the emotional continuity because the actors will do that. It really was two things. Maintain emotional continuity and do not maintain physical continuity. Yeah. Right. Don't make a mistake of not caring about it. Make a, a, a point of caring about it to the point of breaking it Yeah. regularly reliably, but not frivolously, but yeah. rather with intention of emotional continuity. Yeah. That's the driver. That's what drove every staging decision and every way I changed and jumped people around. It was about that. It was very effective. There was a fight when they were taking you to the guillotine, Garrett. There was yeah. sort of a fight that went on with some punches and it was like a, it was a surreal, you know, the hits didn't hurt anybody. Yeah. They weren't being injured at all. No, no. did a thing to them. Like Bellana was was double fisting back, you know, doing all types of Matt alone directed, you know, <laughs> hits, and nothing was happening to those guys. I yeah. thought that was really interesting to see, you know. And again, it's it's because you know if you had gone the other way, it wouldn't be a video game. It wouldn't be a manifestation. They're all ghosts, you know. The yeah. only thing that's that's even remotely real is the intention of the clown but he's not physically real either. Yeah. Do you remember how Marvin directed Garrett? Do I remember how he directed? Do you remember Marvin directing you in the episode? Just occurred, well, I hadn't thought of asking this question, but. You know, the way, the scene where I'm on the, the operating bed and um, they're reminding me of my memory as a nine-year-old with my parents on a humanitarian mission to the colony that had radiation poisoning. And I see yeah. the little kid on the operating table and I got to scream and I'm just going through all this craziness. I remember Marvin coming up to me and go saying, Garrett, you do pain real good or something like that. You said something to that effect where you were like, you were complimenting me on how well I could do you stressed suffer. out. You, you yeah, suffer, I, you suffer better than anybody. You're good at that. Like that. <laughs> we we shared a good laugh about that. I just remember him, Marvin, being pretty collaborative. Like you know, he would listen to us. Like there's some directors who come in who don't. They just don't even listen to any. You know, an actor raises his hand and says, "Hey, I've got a suggestion," and he gets shut down. I've experienced that. I'm not going to say who, but then you know, I just remember that the process went. It went very quickly and it went smoothly. Well, there's something you may have forgotten. I want to jump in because, in fact, it just flashed into my head. Yeah. We did something on that episode that we never do. We had a full pre-episode rehearsal with the entire cast at lunch. I remember because we never oh do it. And I remember. We did. We ran that script three times at lunch. Wow. Three times. I remember the rehearsal Whoa. conversation because we never, was that your we, idea? We even brought McKeon in and we brought some of the other guest cast yeah. in. Mary was willing to do it. I said to her, I said, this show is so big and so complicated that if I have to take time to direct the scenes from yeah. zero to get what I need to make the story work, we'll never finish it. And I and she said, well, what do you need? And I said, well, I'd like to really would love to be able to do a read through before. Actually, I said we did it three times. We did it two times. Um, and what I did the first time is I just had you guys read it and I just listened. And when I thought if something was not quite right, I made a little scribble. Mm -hmm. Then I went back through and I gave notes on that. And I said, you know, I talked about what I thought would be appropriate to change uh, to get this value or that value. You know, I wasn't negative, but I was I was positive. I was, this is what I would love to get. This is why. And there was not much argument. I had thought a lot about what I wanted every moment to be. Not that everybody got it wrong. Most people got it right. I mean, it, was, it wasn't far off, but there were a couple of moments. I can't recall now what they were, but I explained myself quickly, you know, in terms of what I was thinking and why, right? Because if I could give you the why, could internalize the why and make it your own why. And that was my hope. And, and we ran it again. It was flawless. I mean, it really was. And I think everybody got excited about that. Yeah, and you're right. We I don't know another time that we did a rehearsal like that. We, I we think, never did. We've I don't never think done we did. And I recall you being a real advocate for that and pushing for that. And that was exciting. Marvin, I don't know if you remember this. Robbie, I know you do not remember this, but... Uh, one of my most embarrassing moments happened during this episode. We no, were filming on the video game set and I was really tired that day. 
And I decided to find a little nook and cranny to lay down in and take a bit of a nap. I started snoring so badly that they heard it while they were filming. And so <laughs> they were like, who is snoring? So Marvin's like, cut, who's snoring? And they send they send the PAs out. They're running all around the soundstage trying to find. And I literally, Robbie, I found a nook and cranny so far away. They and so I, they couldn't find me for minutes. And I finally, Mike, that. I think it was Mike Demerit that showed up. And he's like, he shakes me. And I'm like, oh. I wake up and he's like, Garrett, you are snoring. We're filming right now. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. I was so embarrassed, but literally that old Arsenio Hall stage with all those set pieces, I had hidden myself that no one could find me for 15 oh, minutes, man. They were just listening for the echoing you're of not my snore. The, you're not the first to snore on a, on a set while we're I, rolling. I, I mean, I've, that's happened I, I get it. dozens of times. Okay, okay, but it's embarrassing to say the least. Yes, you know what I'm saying? And, and credit that you that you brought it back to us for us to all enjoy again because yeah. <laughs> i'd forgotten it completely but now that you mentioned it, i i have some vague memory of that i'm sure i was mad yes <laughs> like who's wrecking the tape i'm behind i remember apologizing to you and when i walked up to you you gave me a sideways glance you were like really that the eyes were like really kid and i was like i'm so sorry marv i'm so sorry okay let's get back to the episode we're in the uh briefing room where we're talking about Janeway is trying to uh, negotiate. How do you negotiate with an emotion? I just love that line, right? <laughs> um, the lighting in the briefing room is much more stark than usual. Oh, I had a question about that. Who was the DP? I think Doug Knapp was the DP of record. Okay. Yeah. But I lit every shot. You and, did, okay. And I, I, figured I also operated the camera a fair amount as well. <laughs> did you yes, really? He did. <laughs> he did. That's crazy. I don't remember that. You know what though? I'll tell you something. It's very interesting. I, I love to operate. It's one of my favorite things to do. And you know, that's one of my skills. That, that's yeah. something yeah. I'm good at, right? Yes. So there's a weird thing if you throw, especially for handheld, if you throw a camera on your shoulder and you're a handheld camera operator and you want to direct and you're standing right next to the actors, like inches at times, inches away, and you're watching the performance through the lens inches away, there isn't a better place to be <laughs> to do that job. Back at the monitors, yeah. <laughs> I'm, right, I'm right in your face. Yeah. If I wanna say something, I can say something so softly and it, it lands with a, a kilowatt punch. Yeah. That's why there are some directors who are also good at camera, Steven Soderbergh, one of my heroes, is uh, loves to operate. His, uh, That's where they want to be. It's yeah. it's not that they don't like the work of other people. They may or may not, but yeah. there is no better place to be than where the lightning is striking. Yeah, you're right there. Do you remember why you chose that different lighting in that briefing room scene? Because sure. it, it typically was not that dark. The reason for that darkening of that scene. Mm -hmm. was because the, the stakes had raised. I know the stakes had raised at that point. The stakes had gone up to the point where the stress level, the threat level, the problem level had gone way up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the stress level was that Bellana was released and Harry was still in there. That's the first time where we understand that our team may not be able to solve this problem. Correct, yeah. Okay. And may not be able to save uh, Harry Kim's life. I remember that scene now, looking at my notes, I remember I loved Neelix had a moment where he says, just try to make him laugh. A good yeah. joke seems to make it go away. At least it does for me anyway. Yeah. <laughs> sort of lost. yeah, and we cut back to you guys giving him that like that, that death silence, you know? Yes. I mean, he's not wrong, but no. he's wrong for the moment. Yeah. You know? And I think, you know, you can't hurry that moment. It's like a joke. You know, if you start the next line on a joke, you kill the laugh, right? Yeah. Okay, and the same kind of situation here. If you step on that moment, you don't let the audience enjoy his discomfort. It's got to breathe. It's got to play out. We go back in from that briefing room scene. We go back into the uh, video game, Fear, yeah. back in Fear's world. And we see Harry is saying, you know, we, we don't have, uh, don't regret anything. We don't have time for regret. And then Fear says something about, uh, you know, they're the old people. You're the new, new and old, old and new. The answer, aha, is to make you old. Mm -hmm. And yeah. you have that old age makeup. Oh my God. Yeah, I do. I mean, that's my first full prosthetic. Everything on my face was a prosthetic, basically. There wasn't any part of me. Yeah, but it looked like you. Yeah, it still looked like me. Yeah. I, it was and, very uh, good makeup, by the way. I thought Very good, right. very long. And I felt very old. And it's funny, the minute you put on old age makeup like that, it changes your physicality. 
as an actor. All of a sudden I wanted to hunch over more, you know, everything about me became ancient. Yeah. And I remember thinking, God, I look horrible old. And I remember there was somebody in the hair department that was a day player that happened to be an Asian American lady, like an older lady. And she saw me when I came out of the makeup trailer and she goes, wow, you're handsome as an old man. And I thought that I looked horrible, right? But, <laughs> but to her, she was like, whoa, you're a silver fox. Ooh. I mean, she loved it, right? So <laughs> That's funny. And then you turned into a baby. How was it working with a baby, Marv? Do you remember that? You know, I really don't. I just, I just remember that, you know, uh, Adele gives me, Adele Simmons, our AD gives me, okay, you got 20 minutes. You know, she looks at her watch, you got 20 minutes and we have to change babies. And it's like, you know, okay, you can't think about it. You have to have a plan. You have to execute your plan. It has to go quickly. Mm -hmm. Everybody's got to punch in because there's not much time. I thought your plan was great. I, as I recall, we didn't have any problem. The one thing I wanted to do, which we couldn't do, is to throw the baby way up in the air. <laughs> You know? Yeah, when I don't think the literal real baby. Oh, the but, real baby. No, I don't think yeah. you could do no, that. But there's a white shot where McKeon does throw it up in the air yeah. and it does get a little bit of air. Yeah. But I wanted him to throw it up about four feet, get four feet of air. That was a prop baby though, Marv, wasn't it? When he threw up a little bit? That was I know, and I, here's what I don't recall. It's been a yeah. long time. I don't recall whether we did a take where it went up. It may very well have been that the weight of the, of the prop baby wasn't enough weight that it's dynamics in the air looked real. Yeah, uh, okay. In okay. other words, to do it right, it's gotta have the same weight distribution as a real, as a real yeah, or thing. it looks like a doll. Yeah, yeah it, it, it has to be, you know, silicone, because silicone weighs the same as flesh. It has to have the weight and heft and the distribution of that weight has to be right. We are very good at picking out fake movement, but, mm, yeah. but that was one of the things I would love to have done is to have him be even more like flip with it. I loved uh, the transition you had when you when he took the baby to put him down on the floor and you cut right. to the reverse and there he, he's putting down Garrett, full right. adult yeah. size Garrett. Again, we had no visual effects budget. So all that stuff had to be done in camera because they'd spent all the money on Cirque du Soleil. So they had yeah. no- <laughs> I just remember that the parents were a little nervous with the baby. They were on set. They, you know, they had never, I don't think they'd been on set before. Now Adele Simmons, RAD was one of these you know, rightly so, a stickler for the rules. Yeah. I'm sure we had the, the representative, a nurse, and you know, all the things that you, that come with that, you know. For me, it was really about, you know, making sure the gag worked. The baby yeah. cried like crazy. Unbelievable. Oh God, yeah. We needed the baby to be scared. Here I'm traumatizing a child for life, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> gotta get this shot, you gotta be scared, you know? But fortunately, I think, just the situation put the baby in, a, in stress enough that he cried, and, and yeah. uh, we, so we got the performance, we got it quickly. It was appropriate. We were able to do it and, and let the baby go back to its parents and move on to the next scene rather quick. I mean, uh, uh, all of the things worked, you know, mm -hmm. all the beats that were scripted were pulled off. And I think, you know, part of the reason why that happened, not that it didn't always happen, the show always worked, but, but you know, it, it worked especially well on that episode, I think, is because everybody was excited about the episode. Yeah. I think, I think nobody thought that was a regular episode. Correct. And I, I certainly didn't treat it like it was just a run-of-the-mill television show that we're all yeah. going to get through as quick as we can. To me, it was a you know, a real high watermark and had the potential to be a remarkable success or an unbelievable failure. Yes. Mean, it, had, it had the potential to be t just awful. Yes. Yeah. Like, what in the world were they thinking? And to guard against that, it, everybody leaned in. You know? Yeah, and, you're right. And the departments leaned in, like makeup, hair, wardrobe, all those departments. Yeah. They, they, yeah. All, they all were putting on their best, their best that they had. And, yeah. and not for money, but for right. love, which yeah. is, again, the whole point of this whole thing. You're right. If you if you half-assed anything, that episode could have flopped. It could have been the worst episode you'd ever Easily. seen, right? Easily. I saw it for that when I read it. I thought, this this is a great opportunity. It's also, there's risk here. And which is why when Mary Howard said Cirque du Soleil, you know, a, a giant weight, huge weight came off my shoulders because yeah. she had an answer that was so elegant because we could go one phone call and get, you know, and I, I don't know whether they were all Cirque du Soleil. They probably, I don't think they were. I think we had six or seven and we had other, but that informed every other decision to be made. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. can you juggle? Can you do this? Can you, can you do the, 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 the line, whatever that, the ribbon thing. Um, ribbons, yeah, of, ribbon. Of that stuff, there was a number of places where, you know, like, what was the line I wrote down? A virus, a virus. He thinks I am a virus. And they were doing like right, right, choreography. Right. And they're performing, and the background artists are performing the emotional continuity of the character's lines. Yeah. 
I love that. Playing. Was that scripted or was that no. you? That was not scripted. No. Oh, what I told them, what I, 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 don't quote me. My memory is not. I remember what I told them. I yeah. said, all of you people are one person. You're all the clown. Right. Mm -hmm. You're aspects of his personality. Yeah. And so you're not independent. You're in, you're dependent. You are him and he is you. So when he does something or says something, you know, you're reactive instantaneously to what his mood and emotion is. Yeah. You're him. So I said, when he says something, play that, play that. If you're a mime, play that, you know? I thought that was really great. The sort of almost choreographed and Michael McKeon, I thought, did a beautiful job of working in, in you know, connection with the background but see, artists. Michael, Michael was part of that conversation. That's great. With the background artists. So Michael then had a chance to talk to them, mm. which I gave him permission. It wasn't literal permission. I just simply, I said it loud enough for everyone to hear. Yeah. And then when he was working things out a little bit. And there were two or three of them that were better than others, but there was a couple that were real mimes. They were mimes. Yeah. And I said, I just said, mime the scene. You know, your mimes mime it, mm. you know? And they did. And, and, and you know, you, you, your audience sees that and it's, it's, not a, it's not a real world. It's a crazy world. And it's, it's all because it's one character. Yeah. You know? they're, one, they're the one character. If you think about it, that money, that the exorbitant amount of funds that were spent on the Cirque du Soleil performance was well worth it. Because if you had just average everyday background artists come in never to play that. You couldn't have talked to them. And, and because these Cirque du Soleil artists, they're already professionals. They already kind of, you know, they're a step ahead as opposed to somebody who just signed up with Central Casting the day before. Because everyone has seen any, a TV show or a movie where the background actors are awkwardly moving around in the back and they just don't seem to, to feel at, at home or they're not very comfortable and you don't buy it. And you definitely yeah. bought it with these background yeah. guys. Well, also there's something else to consider. Technically, the director is not allowed to give direction to the background. I didn't know that. Right, yeah. Robbie? You know that. Yes, that's okay. true. That's true. Right, but there's an easy way to do it. You talk loud enough to the actor about what the background <laughs> is going to be doing. I do so that, that with the ADs all the time because the AD is supposed to talk to the to the background. But I will sometimes stand in the middle of a crowd talking to the first AD and say, hey, Mike, tell the background <laughs> that I need them all to be nodding when this happens. And I just say it really loudly. And <laughs> right. Same idea. So, yeah. So they're all going to nod, right, Mike, when the thing happens? Yeah. Well, I have to give credit. Adele was, Adele let me have some rope in that situation. Uh -huh. yeah. I think, I think she also got it, you know, that there needs to be a unified voice. There needs to be, yeah. you know, a common theme that the actors in the background really are this one character. They really yeah. are elements of the lead, you know, our guest star, Michael McKeon. So anyway, um, she, she gave me some rope, but, but technically you're not supposed to do that. But also we hired really bright people like uh, Garrett was saying, you know, that we hired experts. Oh yeah. Real experts. Yeah. And then we gave them permission to do their job and they did it. Yeah. Thank God. I, mean, I could give a suggestion, but I could never have taken the time, let alone do I have the skill. I don't, I'm not a mime. Yeah. You know, right. I know what a mime is. Yeah. I know how to spell it. I got to say, this was such a great episode. We sort of fell out of our normal format of going through scene by scene. Uh, just to sum it up, I'll, I'll, I'll jump to the end in my experience of what, where sure. this all led us. Uh, we talked already about sort of the, the big ideas of fear and how it can be an ally for us and fear of how we ultimately have to find our way, our, our way of conquering, as Janeway says, or dealing with our own fear. And I think to me, that was the theme of this episode was uh, recognizing the strength and the danger of fear that there can be the value is the better word. Yeah. To me, the theme is recognizing the value and the dangers of becoming controlled by your fears. Well, Janeway's final speech when she when she extinguishes fear, you know, Mm -hmm. And and I love the the last line, which I think Michael McKeon wrote. He said "darn" or something like that. What did well, he something say? Else. He said "drat." Drat. drat. That's yes. what it was. That, I, I couldn't hear it. I, I was like, "What was he saying?" Drat. drat. That's right. Drat. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure he wrote that. It was beautifully shot. It was beautifully conceived. 
I think Kate and Michael both did a great job in just seeing the world shrink to to avoid. You remember the big piece of fabric that's spinning behind him? Spinning around, yes. yeah. When he finally realizes that he's hosed, you know, yeah. the world behind him is spinning. So spinning. we had this giant wheel of fabrics made put yeah. on an armature and broomed it out and that. And the next time we cut back to him, this thing is just slowly spinning behind him, you know. Yeah. And it's just a bunch of fabric on a on an armature. That was your idea or is that in the script? No, it's mine. I thought, you know, we needed to, again, continuity. It, the wall is not the wall. Yeah. You know, the wall is a projection. It's it's a thing that's created yeah. by him and yeah. his, 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 the program. And the yeah. program's going out of control. And so, you know, that was the just a way to visually communicate that, you know, was, again, without spending a lot of money. That was a cool I loved show. it. I loved it. Did you have a, a theme, show. Garrett? Did you have a theme well, for? I think the theme really, Marvin already hit upon it. You know, what he was talking about this whole time, that fear you know, in a certain amount of fear is good. You need that fear. But then if you allow it to consume you, then yeah. you will die from that fear. You know, you will lose it all. So yeah. it really is, it's, it's a lesson again in moderation and a lesson in, in understanding that you need to control the fear. This is an excellent episode that yeah, will stand really the test special. of time and, and it will last forever in terms of uh, being this allegory that, that people need to uh, understand and, and watch this episode. And I really enjoyed being invited to uh, to join you guys that was that was a lot of fun it's been a lot of fun really yes it has it's been really special i had a great time honestly did and, and uh you know uh, i'm sure there's some episodes that where i have something to bear that would be useful if you if you feel that that's i'm happy to do it you know well we, not, would, we would really appreciate that we would i know the fans would really love it we've had such a just an outpouring of kindness and uh, excitement and enthusiasm for this podcast and kind of going yeah. back through it as the three of us did on this episode so it's always fun well the show's still on the air yeah that's right yeah. still think somewhere about, think, about that. think about how many shows are not on the air correct yeah right how many correct. shows in your lifetime you know that you're both watching and also being on it or working on them yeah. are not on the air like forever you're right and Voyager's on on the air and has been, I think, nonstop for yeah. what twenty years? Twenty five. Twenty five years. Twenty five years. <laughs> and so, and twenty five years still on the air. So either everybody that watches it is an idiot, which they're not, <laughs> or it's actually pretty good and also has something relevant to say. Yes. You know, it's not yeah. trivial. Right. It's yeah. not junk. Right. Yeah. It's not a procedural. So we want to thank you, Marvin, and we want to thank all the fans for listening into this episode. Stay tuned next week when we review Tuvix. All right, guys. Great. Thanks, Thanks. a lot. See you next week. So long.